0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. i got brain fog that won't go away. I've got an onset of clinical depression.
1: Still no sense of taste or smell at all numbness, tingling, shooting
0: pains like electrical shooting pains just every few seconds zapping everywhere through my body.
2: One of the mysteries about COVID-19 is how it seems to impact so many different organ systems in our body. We've heard about the heart, the lungs, respiratory symptoms, but a growing mystery is the impact on the nervous system. As a neurosurgeon myself, the brain is one of my great loves. So in today's episode, I'm going to dig into COVID-19 and its effect on the brain with Dr. Sherry Cho from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Dr. Cho is a neurointensivist. That means she's a neurologist who works in the ICU, and she has been on the front lines throughout this pandemic. She's also an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, studying the effects of COVID-19 on the brain and the entire nervous system. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. And this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Doctor, uh, did you ever imagine that you would be involved with a respiratory pandemic like this?
1: Well, in, in my line of work as an intensivist, we do deal with the regular pandemics, like when we had the H1N1, and then in the winter times, we often have a lot of influenza patients. So I do take care of patients like that. But I don't think I've ever, in my wildest imagination, had dreamt up a a, a virus quite like COVID-19. So this feels quite surreal at the moment.
2: You know, we, we hear about a respiratory virus. It's described as a respiratory virus. You typically think of lungs and, and breathing function. What are the ways, if you could, describe how this particular virus is affecting the central nervous system? What are some of the symptoms that people are having that are definitely related to the brain and or spinal cord as opposed to just the lungs?
1: That That's a great question. I think there are several ways the nervous system can be involved. One of the first ways is somehow the virus directly invades in the nervous system and infects the brain or the spinal cord or the nerves themselves and give us a picture of something like encephalitis. There's another way, which is where as part of the body's immune response to fight off the virus, the immune response actually attacks our own brain cells and our own spinal cord and our nerves. And we end up with secondary injury that is not by the virus itself, but by our own immune response to fight off the virus. And people can have weakness, numbness, paralysis, In some cases, it can involve spinal cord and cause an inflammation of the spinal cord or the brain. And finally, there is a third way, which is by being very, very sick from a lung process and by being in an intensive care unit, people can have basically complications from the body being sick and then influencing the brain. One of the famous ones is strokes. In a similar vein, the virus really affects the lung And people get very, very hypoxic, or their oxygen levels can get really low. And the brain is the one organ that really can't tolerate that and can get injured very easily.
2: As you know, Dr. Cho, there's this thing referred to in all these different problem-solving exercises called Occam's razor, where you try and find a singular explanation for all these different things. Is there a unifying theory here as to what is going on in the body during this infection?
1: I would love to find that out. As a neurologist, I love Oakham's razor. And I, I want to find that one causative ideology and channel my inner moment of house. As an intensivist, I know that um, life is very messy. Human life is very messy. Critical illness is extremely messy. And when you get to the point of having multi-organ failure, when we have to take over every bodily function... We no longer have that. We basically have a a large list of problems and we hope to shrink that list rather than increase that list. But pretty much every organ system begins to suffer and develop complications. And we may be seeing some of that with the sickest of the patients.
2: But let me, let me ask more about this, this area of your expertise, specifically the impact of this coronavirus on the central nervous system. There's been a lot of comparisons to the 1918 influenza. Um, one of the things uh, that a lot of people haven't talked about was that there was this, essentially an epidemic of sleeping sickness that was going on in 1918 called encephalitis lethargica. Yep. And some believe uh, the, these these two outbreaks are related in all these different ways. Are there lessons to be to be learned from what happened in 1918 in terms of that virus's impact on the central nervous system?
1: Absolutely. I think what we did learn from the 1918 pandemic, and also I think more recently the Zika virus outbreak, is that the nervous system can often be involved in a pandemic like this, even for a virus that doesn't initially seem to primarily target the nervous system. And some of the symptoms can be delayed. So, encephalitis lethargica, for example, some of the symptoms could be in patients who may have had the infection, seemingly have recovered, and then develop a neurological syndrome at a later time because of changes in our immune system in response to the virus. We may develop new neurological syndromes um, related to that. You know, we're hearing a lot about fatigue, a lot about mental cloudiness. A lot of those things we don't yet have a good way to sort of see on an MRI scan or measure on a blood test, but they're very realistic symptoms that people report. And some patients are reporting that it lasts for a very long time.
2: You know, it's it's interesting, doctor, and I have a colleague, Chris Cuomo, who you may know who was diagnosed with COVID, uh, recovered, but even today was sharing with me that he has persistent, as he calls it, brain fog, mm-hmm. um, and he just has a hard time capturing his thoughts, really remembering things. These patients should be believed, obviously, right? You want to believe what the patients are telling you, but how do you know it's related to the infection versus something else?
1: That's a great question, and it is one of the hardest things to prove uh, or to sort out in in medicine not just with coronavirus, but with many other diseases that we deal with, you know, the numbness or the weakness. In addition to that, people report this sometimes debilitating sense of fatigue or, you know, sort of mental fog, inability to concentrate. We've heard that from patients with migraines. We've heard that from patients with multiple sclerosis to even, you know, patients who have sustained concussion or mild head injuries. I think we as research scientists need to do a better job in coming up with better ways and better approaches to try to study these complex symptoms. And I think they're complex because people are complex and our brains are complex. And a lot of these symptoms probably are a result of multiple different organ systems mildly not working.
2: If somebody has a neurological manifestation, be it loss of smell or delirium or something like that, is that by definition a bad sign?
1: That's a great question. I think that is the fear, uh, certainly from the general public and uh, from many people I've spoken to. I think in general, our concern is anything that impacts a person's neurological function, even if it's not life-threatening. It is hugely debilitating, even for something as simple as, for example, brain fog. In someone who is in a high-level job, someone who is used to not having that brain fog, this could be very debilitating. It may impact their their career. It may impact their family life. It impacts a person's quality of life.
2: You are leading a global research project into the neurological effects of COVID-19 with the Neurocritical Care Society. I'm just curious, how how does that sort of thing come about?
1: Somewhere in early March, we were all anticipating the COVID pandemic. Um, We knew it was going to hit us. We didn't know when. We didn't know how bad. It felt like sitting with your back against the wall and waiting for a tsunami to come. And so we we have a chat line where we exchange ideas, information, but also mutually support one another and share the things that we worry about. And on this chat line, the two things that we were all worried about, one is what what if this virus actually impacts the nervous system? How are we going to treat these patients? And the second thing was we were all worried about what if resources run low? And heaven forbid, we have to start triaging patients as to who gets an ICU bed, who gets a ventilator. Would the patients with neurological disabilities and neurological injuries be the first ones to be triaged away from resources because of some sort of perceived long-term disability or lack of quality of life. While we didn't have solution for that at the time, we felt like we need to know something about it before we can make informed decisions. And um, so I I proposed to a group of friends, you know, I was like, you know, this is going to be tough. We're going to be working a lot. This is going to be awful but we need to collect some data. Otherwise, you know, this tsunami is going to hit us and we wouldn't be able to look back and see what what we did right, what we did wrong, what happened to our patients. And I expected crickets because at that time already we were all getting put on these ridiculous clinical schedules. But to my surprise, everybody enthusiastically responded and said yes. And within a week, it was a global consortium. I think now we have over 200 sites from every continent doing this study, looking into the neurological impacts of COVID-19.
2: I got to say that that is um, really inspiring. I mean, first of all, you just made incredible use of your quarantine time. I pretty much just hung out with the kids and the dogs, you know, during during that time. But also, I mean, th- these are real questions that need to be answered. And And a lot of times it seems like we look upon these things in retrospect, you know, a year or two or even several years down the line. You have to do this real time. I mean, we're still in the middle of this, and yet you're analyzing this data and trying to create new knowledge around it. There's so much that you you spoke about in terms of the questions you're trying to answer. Is there a nagging question at you in terms of the the relationship between coronavirus and the brain?
1: Absolutely, there is. I think as doctors, the best thing we like to do is to fix people and get them better. Short of that, we need to at least be able to tell patients and families what to expect. When is this thing going to get better? Is this thing going to get worse? What exactly is this thing? And uh, right now, we don't have definitive information on any of that. There are many, many theories, and there's a lot of speculation. And I think, as usual, rigorous science, no matter how much we rush, takes a little time.
2: Just finally, doctor, you're you're so level-headed, I can tell, and yet you are the person who's taking care of some of the sickest patients uh, throughout this pandemic. Are you optimistic that the world is going to look different, that you are Work is going to change because we'll be on the other side of this? Or how are you feeling about things?
1: You know, as a, as an intensivist, I'm generally, you know, we're generally optimists. Otherwise, we can't do the work we do. And, uh, and I'll tell you, just, you know, yesterday after a long day in the ICU, I was walking home and trying to socially distance from every homo sapien I meet on the way. <laughs> I walked past this jazz venue that moved their venue outside. So on the street, as the cars are driving by and buses are going by, people sitting six feet apart from one another, and you can hear the jazz music all the way down the street. And when I walked past that, I thought, you know what? This world's going to be okay. I think I think we're all going to be okay. And, uh, and on top of that, we're going to have jazz outdoors, which is wonderful. <laughs> I think we still have a long fight ahead of us, but I, I do hope that we'll end up in a better place because of COVID. I I know it doesn't feel like that right now.
2: Neurological symptoms in particular have a very debilitating effect on our quality of life. They can slow our ability to recover. And not having answers right now about what that means for patients who are experiencing loss of smell or taste or brain fog is difficult. But it does give me hope to know that doctors around the world, like Dr. Cho, are on the front lines working together to understand this virus and doing their best to save patients' lives in the process. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks for listening. Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, along with Amanda Seely and Nadia Kunang from CNN Health. Raj Makija is the senior manager of production operations, with additional help from Michael Nettleman. This week's episodes were produced by Ann Lagamayo, Emily Liu, Aaron Mathewson, Evan Chung, Madeline Thompson, Rachel Cohn, Zach St. Louis, and Zoe Saunders. Nathan Miller is our engineer, and David Toledo is the team's production assistant. Special thanks to executive producer of CNN Health, Ben Tinker, as well as Ashley Lusk, Courtney Koop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio.